0: Daily News and Analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today.
1: Hello and welcome to World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. Coming up, China and Uzbekistan elevate ties to all-weather comprehensive strategic partnership for a new era. What does this mean for bilateral cooperation and exchanges? China and Nauru have re-established diplomatic relations. How significant is this for both countries and the broader South Pacific region? And China moves to stabilize the capital market. How much impact will this have on investor confidence and overall market stability? China and Uzbekistan have upgraded their ties to an all-weather comprehensive strategic partnership for a new era. Chinese President Xi Jinping on Wednesday held talks with his Uzbek counterpart Shafkat Yayev in Beijing. Yayev is in China for a three-day state visit. In a signed article published in Chinese media ahead of his trip, the Uzbek leader says developing multifaceted relations with China is one of the main priorities of his foreign policy. China's foreign ministry has described the visit as an opportunity to elevate bilateral ties and add new momentum to the china Uzbekistan community with a shared future. China became Uzbekistan's largest trading partner in 2023. Joining us now in the studio is my colleague, Ding Han. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Zhao Ying. So first of all, what do you make of this upgrade in bilateral relations?
2: Uh, Encouraging development, for sure. In China's uh, diplomatic language, all-weather has a very high-level connotation. So this is yet another sign that China is attaching greater importance to its ties with Central Asian countries, including Uzbekistan. I think in many uh, respects, we can say Uzbekistan is a like-minded partner for China. So going forward, bilateral ties will only become closer.
1: Well, in a People's Daily article published on Monday, President Mirza Yayev says every time he visits China, he sincerely admires the scale of the reforms taking place in China, uh, the accomplishments, creative strength, diligence and talent of the Chinese people who are confidently pursuing the path of modernization. Uh, In your understanding, why does he speak so highly of the development here in China?
2: Uh, He has really witnessed with his own eyes about what is going on here in China. He came to power in 2016, and in 2017, he paid a visit to China. Uh, Last year, he came to China twice, one in May for the first uh, China Central Asia Summit held in Xi'an, and another one in October for a Belt and Road Forum uh, for international cooperation. So really, I think the ties with China have been his uh, foreign policy priority from the very beginning. He is um, personally said to be very interested in China because, for example, he often quotes former Chinese leader Deng Xiaoping in his public speeches. He clearly sees China as an example for how to develop economically, uh, China's experience in poverty alleviation and fighting against the corruption under President Xi Jinping's leadership, according to what I have read about, have been a particular focus for the Uzbek leader. And one thing we should really keep in mind is that under President uh, Mia Zioyev, Uzbekistan has become more open to engaging with the outside world. So in this regard, China is a source of knowledge and inspiration on how a country can open up while, at the same time, maintaining its own genes.
1: Well, trade between China and Uzbekistan hit 14 billion U.S. dollars last year, which represented a 40% year-on-year growth. And also, official figures from the Uzbek side shows that in recent years, the scale of Chinese investment in Uzbekistan has increased by fourfold, and the number of Chinese enterprises operating in the country has doubled. What do you think is the driving force behind this uh, momentum in bilateral economic ties?
2: Well, I think this momentum is actually first and foremost Uh, based on political mutual trust between the two countries. In Central Asia, we know color revolution is actually not a stranger. Um, Notably, we saw the US-sponsored tulip revolution in Kyrgyzstan back in 2005. In contrast, uh, Beijing never interferes uh, in any other country's internal politics or affairs. Uh, During the 2022 summit of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, in which uh, Uzbekistan is a member, uh, President Xi Jinping actually called for joint efforts to work together to uh, togetherly, you know, fend off color revolution attempts. Uh, The other way around, we have never seen any Central Asian country, including Uzbekistan, pointing fingers at, say, Xinjiang issue, human rights issue in in China, because they know those are fabricated anti-China narratives. And then realistically, I think the economic trend we have seen most recently only shows there is a great potential for bilateral economic cooperation, In trade, it is not only China selling to Uzbekistan. Uzbekistan is also increasingly selling items like natural gas and agricultural products uh, to China. More than 2,400 Chinese companies are doing business in Uzbekistan, which is driven by the improving business environment in that country. And of course, in this regard, I think Xinjiang is a hub and gateway when we talk about bilateral trade, Earlier this week there was a forum on uh, China Uzbekistan cooperation held in Urumqi the capital city of Xinjiang more than 1300 guests attended that particular event which can also tell a lot about the real momentum so i guess in a bigger picture sense uh, this momentum was, was was Uzbekistan is also pointing to China's efforts in terms of Expanding and diversifying its foreign trade pattern.
1: Yeah, and one thing you have already mentioned a little bit is that Uzbekistan is a partner country in the Belt and Road. So, in your uh, in your observation, how has Uzbekistan benefited from um, this um, Belt and Road initiative?
2: Yeah, so my observation is that um, some people are probably pointing to China's so-called trade imbalance, namely trade surplus with Uzbekistan. In my opinion, probably the best approach to addressing this issue is actually through BRI, whereby... Uzbekistan gets access to more opportunities to uh, develop its infrastructure connectivity and industrial capacity, because only when you have access to mature industrial capacity um, can a country be able to you know, export more, especially in a more sustainable manner. Uh, for example, I have read about a case in which... Um, Since the year 2017, a Chinese conglomerate named Jing Shen Group has invested in a textile factory over there in Uzbekistan and 95% of that factory's products are actually exported abroad. So that's really a good model of cooperation under the Belt and Road Initiative. Of course, nowadays, I think China is developing the BRI with a mindset uh, regarding, for example, more sustainable and more uh, greener, uh, more environmentally friendly, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. I think during President Mirziyoyev's visit to China, this new this new reality will probably, you know, factor into more concrete results.
1: Yes, and also during the visit by Mirziyoyev, there are a range of bilateral held events on culture, education, and subnational cooperation. So, apart from economic ties and infrastructure connectivity, what are the areas where you think um, there's a great potential for more cooperation?
2: Uh, for example, one thing I can think about is uh, cooperation at the scientific and technological fronts. Uh, the Chinese Academy of Sciences, for example, has already opened an observation station in the nearby Tajikistan for some environmental research purposes and also for some, I guess, international disaster relief, reduction, and prevention I don't see a reason why a similar station cannot be opened in Uzbekistan as well if there is a need, for sure. Also, cooperation in renewable energy. In December, a Chinese company signed a deal with the Uzbek Energy Ministry in order to uh, build some somewhere around 50,000 charging stations for electric vehicles in this country, over the next decade, by the year 2033. And then probably security cooperation. In this regard, we're mostly talking about the the, the framework under the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, uh, because uh, both China and Uzbekistan border Afghanistan. So both countries have a shared stake in terms of the peace and stability of Afghanistan.
1: Yeah, and, and recently, uh, there has been some talks about the so-called Chinese strategic goal in the Central Asia. And also, there's a narrative framing these things as Chinese influence versus Russian influence in Central Asia. What is your thought on in this regard?
2: Uh, first of all, I don't really buy this idea that Russia is becoming less influential over there because of China or because of the war in Ukraine that's a fake statement, largely, then there is no such thing as China-Russia rivalry over there, because in fact, both Moscow and Beijing view their regional presence over there as cooperative and complementary, maybe. In essence, China's intention is pretty simple, because just like towards any other region across the world, China wishes to make some contribution towards, say, peace, uh, stability, security, and prosperity in the region, and that's all.
1: Okay, Dean thanks for joining us. You're listening to World Today. Stay with us. The People's Republic of China and the Republic of Nauru have resumed diplomatic relations at the ambassadorial level. A joint communique on the resumption of diplomatic relations has been released Nauru has recognized that China is the sole legal government representing the whole of China and Taiwan is an inalienable part of Chinese territory. The two sides agree to exchange ambassadors as early as possible and to provide each other with all the necessary assistance for the establishment of embassies and their performance of functions in each other's capitals. Dongxue reports
3: foreign ministers from China and Nauru has signed a joint communique uh, on the resumption of diplomatic ties in Beijing here right behind me in these podiums to re-establish the diplomatic relations between the People's Republic of China and the Republic of Nauru. With the move marking Nauru, the 183rd countries established diplomatic relations with China. When Nauru's foreign minister earlier said here that its government recognized that there is but one China in the world, that's the government of the People's Republic of China, being the sole legal government representing the whole of China, and Taiwan is an inalienable part of China's territory. What he said, and I quote, we look forward to this new chapter of relationship between Nauru and China. It will be built on strength, built on development strategy, it will also have a synergy of policies, and we will have good collaboration and shared governmental principles that both our countries will enjoy. Obviously, both sides have expressed willingness to the practical cooperation that's gonna happen between Nauru and China. Well, the prospect is bright, the horizon is full of light, as the Nauru foreign minister has put it. Well, China's foreign minister Wang Yi said, well, this move again demonstrates that the one China principle is in line with the global trends as well as the arc of history. And there is one, but only one China in this world.
4: We look forward to
1: working with Nauru to deepen political mutual trust, facilitate mutually beneficial cooperation and the friendship between the two peoples, and pushing bilateral relations to a higher level.
3: And Nauru's foreign minister has also uh, said he was amazed how fabulous development uh, development of China's Guangzhou city is, and he's looking forward to his trip to Shanghai soon, and he would like to uh, share all the uh, developments with China as well.
1: That is Stone shear reporting, and for more, we are now joined by Chen Hong, President of the Chinese Association of Australian Studies and Director of Australian Studies Centre at East China Normal University. Can you provide some historical context of the relations between China and Nauru, and what do you think has led to the recent decision to resume diplomatic ties at the ambassadorial
4: level? Well, there are uh, multiple you know, factors that lead towards their uh, uh, the change. Uh, China and Nauru, you know, had uh, into long standing relationship even before the two countries established, you know, diplomatic relationship in 2002. But after that, you know, anti-China forces from the West have been, you know, manipulating, you know, their political and diplomatic decision making in the country, you know, in Nauru. And bilateral relations had had, you know, ups and downs. And even when the two sides didn't have formal ties, you know, uh, bilateral trade and cultural exchanges have been going on with uh, very significant profits and also outcomes. In uh, 2020, uh, the the year before last, uh, bilateral trade volume between China and Nauru was uh, 13.2 million U.S. dollars, a 15 percent increase year on year, and China exported 13 million U.S. dollars of goods to Nauru, and the island nation exported about 107,000 U.S. dollars of goods to China. So last week, Nauru announced it was sever ties with uh, the uh, Taiwan region and seek to resume diplomatic relationship with China. It is a sensible, sagacious decision. I'm glad that the uh, joint communique has been you know, signed today, you know, so quickly, unveiling a new chapter, you know, in the uh, bilateral relationship. And I'm sure more and further cooperation will take place to bring more benefits to the two sides.
1: How does Nauru's decision to re-establish diplomatic ties with China align with the general consensus among nations and, and what message does it send to other countries that may consider similar moves?
4: Yeah, it is the uh, prevalence and the overwhelming trend that the uh, international community align with the uh, one-China principle. You know, numbers or statistics reflect the, the truth. Numbers don't lie, you know. The overwhelming majority of the uh, international community recognize the fact that there is only one China Taiwan is an inalienable, you know, you know, inseparable part of China, and the government of the People's Republic of China are the uh, sole legitimate uh, government of the whole country of China. Any government with sensibility and, and lucidity of mind, with Sensible assessments of the international Geostrategic reality would come to this natural conclusion. China is the world world's, you know second largest economy and represents the uh, Constructive forces of today's world. I think for countries big or small a healthy, you know proactive Productive relationship or even partnership with China is crucial to their international cooperation in a political and economic development and cultural diversity So I think for the handful of countries that still remain you know, uh, you know, you maintain official ties with the uh, Taiwan region. I'm very confident that more of them will come to the census and fall in line with uh, the countries at the right side of history.
1: Yes, and actually since Tsai Ing-wen took office as Taiwan regional leader in 2016, a total of 10 countries have severed the so-called diplomatic relations with the Taiwan region. What do you think mm-hmm. is behind this trend?
4: Uh, First of all, the uh, handful of countries that have or had, you know, official ties with the Taiwan region have been or had been misled. In particular, they have been, you know, coaxed and enticed by the economical financial leverage played, by the, uh, you know, the, the Taiwan region. However, you simply cannot buy diplomatic relationship or friendship with bribery, with economic enticements. You know, China is one of the most important political powers in the world, one of the permanent members of the United Nations Security Council, in particular representing the developing countries. In contrast, the Taiwan region's political significance is simply, you know, almost non-existent or simply irrelevant. Even Econ- economy-wise, you know that the Taiwan region's economy has already lost its l- lost its luster with almost no meaningful impact on the world's economic development. The financial enticements it has been trying to offer is scanty and very often, you know, the so-called aid programs from the Taiwan region have had a little impact on the economic development and improvement of the livelihood of the Pacific uh, uh, island countries peoples, you know, one instance is that the uh, Taiwan region, you know, uh, used to have agricultural, you know, projects in some uh, Pacific Island uh, 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 countries, but many of the uh, projects, you know, simply failed. In contrast, for example, the uh, the Tower project that China had been working in conjunction with many Pacific Island countries, you know, has been extremely successful with enormous, you know, economic and social outcomes. The pro-Taiwan independence policy adopted by uh, Tsai Ing-wen is poisonous to their st- stability and prosperity across the Strait and also in the region. So relationship, official relationship with the, uh, with the, 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 the Taiwan region could bring in stability or risks to their continuity of sustainable, you know, relationship. That is why the Taiwan region is turning into a cesspool that everybody wants to avoid.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, in the context of the Nauru's development needs, could you specify the areas in which China might offer contributions, like infrastructure development, environmental protection, or uh, economic investment, etc.
4: The small, you know, island country with a small population of, uh, of about, uh, you know, twelve uh, thousand five hundred. Historically, it's a uh, phosphate mine. You know, have been you know plundered, you know, exploited by the western countries such as germany the uk and even australia the western you know colonial powers never attempted to you know structured economic developments in these countries or any, you know, Pacific, you know, island countries. After Nauru gained independence, you know, there had been, you know, simply almost no meaningful, you know, economic development, no development of infra- infrastructure, you know, and Nauru had to, you know, uh, you know, rely on, you know, phosphate mining and exports, which obviously is not sustainable. So what China has been doing with uh, the Pacific island countries has been partnership with mutual benefits, you know, China has been, you know, uh, having its, you know, economic and business interests, you know, projects or, you know, uh, uh, trade activities in those countries. And by helping and supporting the development of the local infrastructure, you know, helping with the improvements of the health levels and, uh, you know, education levels of the people, the business environment becomes better conducive to more and further economic and trade cooperation between China and those countries. So as you mentioned, you know, infrastructure, you know, you know, environmental protection, you know, combating climate change, fisheries, you know, which, uh, uh, you know, uh, Nauru is rich in resources of economic marine farming and also uh, uh, agriculture. Tourism is another area which we could explore with this very keen enthusiasm with the uh, Chinese uh, tourists, you know, Chinese holiday makers who have this particular interest in island tourism. I think the two countries could not only, you know, replicate uh, economic cooperation that has been successfully carrying out elsewhere in the Pacific region between China and the island countries. But there are new horizons, new, new spheres, which we can jointly, can jointly develop to the benefits of both countries and also peoples.
1: Um, what is the significance of china nauru relations for the broader development goals of South Pacific island nations?
4: Mm, broadly speaking, you know, um, Pacific island countries have their huge potential, you know, potential for economic and social and cultural development and growth, for Nauru to join the big family of uh, China-Pacific countries in you know, a partnership. This uh, it is very significant. That is why we always say, you know, bilateral relationship can often, you know, spill over to have broader significance and impact. Some anti-China forces in some Western countries have been, you know, trying to alienate the. Uh, Uh, Pacific Island countries from their partnership with uh China, they have been fabricating and hyping up the so-called China threat theory. But the Pacific Island countries have the judicious assessments and the political wisdom to identify their true needs, to identify their you know, national uh, interests. They don't want to uh, become simply the pawns or tools or instruments of Western powers, in particular, on the chessboard of the so-called Indo-Pacific strategy of Washington. Nauru is a small country, but it has its own you know, independence, dignity and national interests to look after. I think it is now a growing trend for countries around the world to defy the American hegemony and safeguard their own, you know, countries' long-term strategic interests.
1: Mm-hmm. But while China promises economic benefits, are there potential risks of dependence or debt burdens for Pacific island nations like Nauru?
4: Well, any, you know, economic relationship has risks. You know there's no panacea or uh, you know bulletproof device that could create something to make an economic relationship immune of uh, you know risks so for the two parties in the relationship in india business relationship we need to take economic judiciousness careful planning based on strategic thinking scientific modeling you know to avoid or reduce risks that is why i think some western politicians you know some uh, western media outlets have been you know playing this game they distort and magnify, you know, risks that that, is, that, that are simply natural, you know, risks are natural, as I just said, in a business relationship. And then they try to amplify, to politicize the risks or potentials of risks. It is a malicious trick. They use people's psychology, you know, people's fear about risks, to create rumors against China or cooperation with China. Sometimes, you know, some, uh, such tricks could be misleading. But at the end of the day, people in their Pacific Island countries or elsewhere, in the world will know better. They are able to see through these uh, tricks, you know, rumors about the so-called debt trap. They try to intimidate the uh, Pacific Island countries. But as we can see, more and more countries, this is a fact that more and more countries have been prospering out of this ongoing and growing partnership with China.
1: This Chen Hong, president of the Chinese Association of Australian Studies and director of Australian Studies Centre at East China Normal University, You're listening to World Today. We'll be back. This is World Today. I'm Zhao Yang. China has sent a clear signal that more efforts will be made to stabilize the capital market and improve investor confidence. A state council meeting on Monday briefed policymakers on the operations of the country's capital markets. The meeting emphasized the need to further improve the basic system of the capital markets, pay more attention to the dynamic balance of investment and financing, improve the quality and investment value of listed companies, increase the entry of medium- and long-term funds into the market, and enhance the inherent stability of the market. For more, we are now joined by Professor Liu Baocheng, Director of the Center for International Business Ethics at University of International Business and Economics. Professor Liu, thanks for joining us.
5: Okay, thank you, it's a pleasure.
1: Uh, So what do you think are the key challenges or concerns in the current market environment? And, And what do you think are the most critical components of China's plan to stabilize the capital market?
5: Well, the capital market is a strong driver uh, for Chinese growth, particularly by combining capital with the real economy. And uh, and now uh, that is why the Chinese government has uh, placed increasing emphasis on how the capital market can be invigorated to support the Chinese economic growth and uh, for a higher uh, level of development. And now uh, we do feel a dismay in the performance of all the stock exchanges, and this is due to the fact that uh, investors are short of uh, confidence and, uh, and many of them are really watching over a number of uh, uncertainties and also given some of the uh, sectors that are being injured by the uh, either the COVID control or by more of the dramatic measures to uh, lash on those uh, uh, particular sectors. So, uh, therefore... Uh, It is really high time for the government to streamline all the regulations and to uh, provide higher level of transparency to uh, both the institutional and uh, individual investors. And on the other hand, uh, it is uh, much of those uh, entrepreneurs and uh, new business refinancing that uh, need to be supported with uh, a higher level of confidence and also with higher level of uh, predictability over their performance.
1: Yes, uh, actually, the meeting mentions enhancing the inherent stability of the market. But what concrete measures do you think uh, the CSRC and other authorities will take to achieve this?
5: I think, uh, yes, they have to strike a a very delicate balance between the uh, collaboration of uh, uh, those uh, investors by uh, providing higher level of uh, facilitation for them to uh, simplify the filing and reporting procedures and uh, uh, and then on the other hand they also need to uh, provide effective measures to contain uh, some of the uh, mis operations uh, to uh, deal address uh, with the corruption issues with the unlawful behavior and so, and then in addition, they also need to provide uh, better uh, security for the uh, privacy of those uh, uh, investors. They uh, and finally, they also need to encourage more of the opening of the Chinese financial market for uh, foreign participants, be it funds or venture capitalists.
1: Yes, and the meeting the uh, meeting also mentioned increasing the flow of medium and long-term funds. Uh, what policy incentives or regulatory changes uh, do you think can attract these investors into the market?
5: Well, uh, in the financial circle, people talk about hot money, and uh, hot money are speculative in nature. However, uh, when the hot money is... Uh, They are being invoked. Uh, It is uh, really due to the uncertainty of uh, a long-term profitability or long-term gains they could possibly get. So, therefore, to reduce the temperature to bring the hot money to park a long-term engagement with particular enterprises with particular business sectors, Uh, we uh, again need a higher level of. Transparency and predictability uh, within the uh, legal framework and also with the regulatory environment. And then uh, they also need to uh, streamline some of the uh, blind spots that are there to uh, give uncertainties. So the uh, the other issue is that I, you know uh, those investments are really parked with particular companies and uh, or particular entrepreneurship. So they must be able to see there's a strong drive for them to grow higher and larger and stronger uh, in their business before uh, they reduce the uh, reluctance to uh, park for a longer period of time.
1: Okay, so how much impact do you expect these new measures or these messages will have on investor confidence and uh, the overall market stability?
5: Well, uh, the entire performance is uh, highly related to the macro uh, to the macro management policies. So uh, in DRC's uh, regulation does really give a further push uh, for those uh, uh, investment mechanisms. Uh, however, uh, we can see that uh, uh, from the Economic Work Conference, from the... Uh, uh, many other of the uh, guidelines issued by the State Council and uh, various ministries, uh, the, the whole issue is to stabilize the economy and to uh, provide a better confidence to those investors and also their uh, consumers on the uh, opposite end. They, and this will be able to uh, give a, a better uh, picture for those uh, investors. Uh, One is that uh, because they have less uncertainty in their reporting system, for example, for their IPO or for their indirect indirect listing. And uh, uh, then the empowered and enabled environment for uh, doing business is really the fundamental issue that attracts the uh, park of long-term investment to grow with Chinese economy to grow with Chinese enterprises.
1: Mm-hmm. So what message would you give to international investors regarding the future prospect of China's capital market?
5: Well, uh, they need to look at the broad aspect of the Chinese economy. Uh, last year, we achieved 5.2% of the growth, which is still a stellar performance given all the, those difficulties and headwinds that the whole world economy is facing. So. The Chinese consumer market is the ultimate, uh, ultimate driver because all businesses produce goods and services to uh, service the market that has the uh, buying interest and buying power. So this uh, fundamental is still very strong. And the other is that uh, uh, Chinese the regulators are also very good learners. They get more adaptive to the changes of the reality And they uh, gradually are there to uh, streamline uh, some of the hurdles in their policy framework to uh, make the business environment more friendly for those uh, investors. And uh, also dialogue with the Chinese regulators, with Chinese uh, uh, business chains uh, along the whole supply. Uh, uh, That is also uh, very important to uh, clarify some of the doubts that are looming uh, over the decision-making process. So uh, we can see that uh, the enthusiasm is already on the rise, a matter of number of uh, foreign investors who visit China, uh, be it bankers, be it fund managers. And they are also very keen uh, to uh, invest in China. And so the the primary confidence is still there, just we uh, just need to clarify. So what is really uh, the bond of uh, national security review and what is the, uh, the area that they further encourage? So uh, policy dialogues and uh, uh, communication face-to-face with regulators and uh, also the, uh, to promote engagement with the Chinese uh, uh, business owners uh, is the way to go to further boost the confidence and enhance the healthy growth of the Chinese capital market.
1: Okay, thank you, Professor Liu Baucheng, Director of the Center for International Business Ethics at University of International Business and Economics. This is World Today. Stay with us. This is World Today, I'm Zhao Ying. Shanghai's GDP expanded by 5% year-on-year in 2023 and saw the actual use of foreign capital hit record high as the city remained the top choice for multinational enterprises. The city's GDP hit 4.7 trillion yuan or $660 billion U.S. dollars last year. It has set economic growth target at around 5% for 2024. Among the highlights, Shanghai's actual use of foreign capital hit a record high of 24 billion U.S. dollars. Meanwhile, the GDP of South China's Guangdong province grew by 4.8 percent last year. As the manufacturing heartland and leading foreign trade player in the country, Guangdong accounted for about one-tenth of China's GDP. To better understand local economies of Shanghai and Guangdong, my colleague Zhao Yang spoke with Chu Qian, research fellow from Beijing Foreign Studies University.
6: So Professor Chu, thank you for joining us. Shanghai has seen a 5% economic growth in the year 2023. So what are some of the main drivers of Shanghai's economy, do you think?
0: Actually, Shanghai has made a lot of uh... Uh, changes in the current business cycle because everybody knows in the last and the last before last business cycle The champion and the uh, vanguard of Chinese economy uh, Is uh, Guangdong province of Shenzhen and later a uh, Hangzhou city in a Zhejiang province, right? Because uh, for the last last round, I think big names like uh, the Tencent group they actually appeared in you know Shenzhen and they dominated the last round of the uh, internet revolution in China. And later, when Alibaba Group and the uh, you know other companies appeared, they actually been located in Hangzhou City in the Zhejiang Province. But also in the current five years, I think Shanghai has made a lot of improvement to, to change their, you know, talent structure, business structure, as well as the government policy to support uh, this new economy, like tax-heavy internet-based economy, to grow. For example, you have heard already many big names like, uh, uh, like Little Red Book, right? Like uh, the Billy Billy, and also. Uh, like the MiHao game company they are like the, the champion of their own niche market and be, they are all located in shanghai and shanghai for to be honest is not been famous for a internet you know hq you know a city previously shanghai was famous for the financial industry as well as the foreign trade industry. But Shanghai has made a lot of improvement to, you know, for example, to set up many research in the uh, development center. Uh, they have had the Zhangjiang district for the talent nurturing. They have been bonding with many local, you know, universities like uh, the Tongji University, Fudan University, etc. as well as they have greatly improved the Pudong new economic zone to give them lots of favorable policies like in attacks. Mm. So all these favorable conditions, all this kind of efforts Efforts, the form a joint effort to attract many new economy and companies especially as startups and entrepreneurs to be here and to start their own adventure i think this new round of you know economic cycle championed by shanghai and the shanghai companies actually has become the major force of this new round of the growth of shanghai
6: Mm -hmm. And Shanghai is a financial center. It's an international trade and shipping hub and new growth drivers and emerging industries like pharmaceutical, like AI developers also very steadily. So tell us more about that. And why is it still the top choice for multinational companies investments here in China?
0: Well, Shanghai is always the you know the first stop of the foreign capital to try to invest in the, uh, China. Shanghai has a long history, time-honored history, actually, to welcome international capital to you know invest in China. Early in the 1980s, when China just opened up and started the reform, and the first you know a PE capital and the first uh, foreign bank. Come to China is located in Shanghai. So uh, the whole city has formed not only the mindset, but also all kinds of the hard and the soft infrastructures to welcome the uh, international investors. We started by you know, uh, manufacturing labor-intensive industry, and later uh, they become more focused on the tax-savvy industry, uh, capital-savvy industry, and now they're focused more on you know this new economy, you know, championed by the uh, EV, by chips, by pharmaceutical and bioscience technology. So in Zhangjiang a, a district, that they have been located, probably all the international champions of the pharmaceutical companies, and also the spillover effect uh, has already been influenced adjacent area. There is another advantage needs to mention about it, is that they have what we call the cluster effect, because Shanghai is not only fighting along by itself. It's been combining the original district advantages of the whole uh, Yangtze River Delta. For example, the Jiangsu province and Zhejiang province and also Anhui province, uh, they've been surrounding Shanghai City. They've been providing Shanghai all kinds of you know, complementary advantages like the talents, like transportation, like the raw material, like the uh, lands, and etc.
6: And the government has recently unveiled a comprehensive reform plan for Pudong New Area. So what's the focus on the financial market and technological development? And how will this help the local economy? Uh,
0: after 40 years more of the uh, reform and opening up, we have already made uh, groundbreaking, uh, you know, pr- improvement in opening up and welcoming international investor. But still, I think uh, many things needs to be done. For example, uh, if you are foreign investors when you come to China, uh, there are many details re- uh, remain need to be overcome. For example, how to set up a you know a bank account, how to you know wire in and wire out uh, the capitals, and also when you made. Uh, money in Chinese market Uh, how do you make more out of this kind of the capital you made in China for example uh, in international financial marketing we usually can use this some money in our bank account to buy you know wealth management products to use the capital to generate more of the profit and the wealth but in China uh, we have our own uh, capital regulation in the capital account and how can we help the international players you know, to push through all this choke point. So I think Pudong New Area, again, has pioneered this kind of the trial, this kind of pilot program, as well as uh, tryout. Mm-hmm. So in this Pudong New Area, the government made a lot of new policies, for example, allowing the international capitals to set up onshore but offshore account. And also you can use the money inside of the account to invest in Chinese capital market. Everybody knows in China, uh, the Chinese market and Chinese exchange ratio for Chinese local currencies are very, very stable compared to other counterparts, especially comparing to other emerging markets. So I think investing in Chinese capital markets is still very attractive to many international investors against the uh, current international geopolitical and financial turbulence, right? Mm. So right now, they can do that because mm. the new policies have implemented in uh, Pudong New Economic Zone. And for South
6: China's Guangdong province, its GDP reached the 13.5 trillion yuan last year. And it has become the first province in the country to surpass 13 trillion yuan in output value. So tell us more about the economic vitality of Guangdong. How different is the industrial structure there?
0: Yes, I think the number one champion city is Shanghai. But when you're talking about uh, province, I think as a province, nobody can deny that Guangdong is always the king in Chinese economy. Uh, I think Ch- uh, Guangdong's uh, advantage is uh, a bit th- Different from Shanghai because Guangdong have a very complicated and large size and comprehensive structure of economy, sort of like California in America. Uh, Because in Guangdong, we have high tech and advanced uh, economy uh, like what we have already seen in Shenzhen, in Dongguan and in Guangzhou and Foshan. Uh, We have big names like Tencent, as we mentioned about, like BYD, the champions in EV making, right? And also we have many, you know, semiconductors industry. But also in Guangdong, we have large-scale manufacturing industries supporting, you know, our daily life, for example, in Zhongshan City. Uh, in Shunde, Huizhou City. So all this city, they have their large industry supporting, you know, basic need of our all kinds of the daily life as well as the fundamental demand in manufacturing and also supporting the uh, high-tech manufacturing. It's like someone are doing the high-tech, at high-end industry, but also there's somebody doing the groundwork to support, support you. So it's like a team. You know geared up with all things you need for example if you want to build your mobile phone if you want to build your own Robot you can find all kinds of parts services and talents you know within 50 kilometers radius around the city of Shenzhen from the high-end products like chips and uh, semiconductor to the low-end products for example like the silicon uh, shells and uh, also to the delivery services. So I think that's the reason why Guangdong as a province, its economy is so powerful and vibrant.
1: That's Chu Qiang, research fellow from Beijing Foreign Studies University, speaking with Zhao <music> Former U.S. President Donald Trump has won the New Hampshire primary, extending his lead in the race for the Republican presidential nomination. Trump's New Hampshire win follows his landslide victory last week in Iowa, where he won over half of the votes. The victory is a blow to his last remaining major competitor, Nikki Haley, who insists the race is not over. For more, we are now joined on the line by Joseph Siracusa, inaugural dean of Global Futures at Curtin University in Australia. Professor Siracusa, thanks for joining us.
7: My pleasure. Thank you very much.
1: Uh, So what factors do you believe have contributed to Trump's success in these early contests?
7: Well, what he was able to do was to consolidate the uh, registered members of the Republican Party. Uh, He uh, outscored Ambassador Haley by about 70 to 75 percent to her 25 percent. She did a little better with the independent voters. But, you know, at the end of the day, He's won the Iowa and the New York and uh, New Hampshire primaries back to back, the first modern presidential candidate to do so since these primaries were inaugurated in 1976. So he's uh, he's off and running, and uh, you know she uh, she spent about 90 million dollars maybe so far, and hasn't made an, in, any inroads into Trump's popularity or hiving off the party. So it's quite clear that the Republican Party. Wants to give Donald Trump a second chance, and that there's nothing uh, stopping him really except uh, his health. I mean, he has legal issues, but he's not too worried about that. She she gave it a good try. She's an old-fashioned Republican. That's uh, she's uh, she likes tight money policies and and balanced budgets. Uh, in some ways, though, um, I didn't like her views on on Ukraine. She thinks we have to continue helping Ukraine. She regards China as uh, as uh, enemies, as the enemy, and not the, not a competitor. I mean, in many many ways, her foreign policy is is quite outdated and, and not very helpful, as a matter of fact. So, I think in that sense, and I mean, foreign policy plays a small role, but for people like me who are interested in it, she wasn't doing the Republican Party any good. In any case, it looks like Donald Trump is going to uh, have a rematch with Joe Biden.
1: Okay. So, uh, you know, the anti-Trump wing of the GOP had hope for an alternative candidate heading into the 2024 elections. Uh, But with Trump's uh, victories and growing support, how do you see the dynamics within the party evolving? And and what challenges might anti-Trump Republicans face in shaping the party's future?
7: Well, these are uh, people who spent a lot of money to uh, sort of shake the tree and, and, and attack Trump. They spent... Seventy, eighty million dollars on Governor DeSantis of Florida uh, to derail the, uh, the Trump uh, train on the way to the nomination, and uh, spent eighty to ninety million dollars so far on uh, Governor Haley or Ambassador Haley. And it's not anti-Trump; it's just never Trumpers. You know, they wanted anybody but Trump, and it's quite uh, quite obvious that the uh, the, re- the average Republican voter, that is the registered voter, and a lot of other Americans want to give Donald Trump a a second try of the White House. I mean, the best we can say about uh, Governor DeSantis and Ambassador Haley is that their time has not come. You know, they would have been perfectly positioned in 2028. But right now, um, uh, the the country is galvanizing around President Trump, despite his legal troubles and the indictments and all the rest of it. And they see him as a, a better option for America in terms of immigration policy, in terms of economy the inflation and that kind of thing. So uh, they uh, they think they're going to be better off with Donald Trump than with Joe Biden, but we're definitely headed towards a rematch.
1: Yeah, so as you said, uh, we're very likely to see a Trump-Biden rematch, but how might a rematch uh, differ from previous encounter and what key factors could influence the outcome?
7: Well, I want you to keep in mind in the last two polls, uh, the, the polling was perfectly correct. The Des Moines Register, a newspaper in Iowa, perfectly uh, picked the uh, the winner in Iowa, and the other polls that have been in trekking polls in New Hampshire have been absolutely correct. So the polls are very accurate this time. And right now, I think uh, uh, President Trump holds a four or five point lead over President Biden in the uh, in the event of a, uh, a rematch, which is going to happen anyway. And so uh, I think. Uh, President Trump has an advantage in those so-called uh, uh, states, uh, swing states where they're only divided by a couple of points. And, of course, uh, President Biden's policy on Ukraine uh, uh, hasn't helped him. His, uh, his policy in defending Netanyahu in the Middle East hasn't helped him. And, and, and a whole lot of things he's doing that are wrong, as a matter of fact. So a lot, the left wing of the Republican Party, which has always been very progressive, led by people like uh, Bernie Sanders and, and others, uh, will fall away from him. And, you know, the, the polls also show that President Biden is losing out to Trump in terms of black voters, Hispanic voters, uh, uh, white women in the suburbs. You know, he's, he's losing all these categories where he are, he's these uh, these groups that he had the last time around. So Trump is becoming, as Trump becomes more popular, the president becomes More unpopular, 66% of the American people believe they have an unfavorable rating about Joe Biden. Mm -hmm. Of course, 70% of the American people don't want to see either one of them. run. They think they're they're too old. So this is the last uh, major political battle between the baby boomers in America before we move on we pass the torch to a new generation.
1: Yes, thank you, Joseph Siracusa, inaugural dean of Global Futures at Curtin University in Australia. And that's all the time we have for this edition of World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. Thank you so much for listening. See you next time.